0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hello, Rise Together family. Dave here. We've got a special, special episode today. I'm so, so grateful for our guests. We have Dr. Edith Eager, a renowned psychologist, and her daughter, child psychologist, Dr. Mary Ann Engel, on the show. Dr. Eger was a teenager back in 1944 when she and her family were sent to Auschwitz during the Second World War. Despite overwhelming odds, Edith survived the Holocaust and moved with her husband to the United States. Having worked in a factory while raising her young family, she went on to graduate with a PhD from the University of Texas and became, as I mentioned, an eminent psychologist. Today, she maintains a busy clinical practice and lectures around the world, including interviews with Oprah and Brene Brown and many, many more. And today, as I said, we're fortunate to have her joined by her amazing daughter, child psychologist, Dr. Marianne Engel, who co-authored the just released new edition of her beloved book, The Gift, now titled The Gift, 14 Ways to Save Your Life. It's a follow up to her New York Times bestseller, The Choice. The original edition of The Gift launched back in September, 2020 to rave reviews for its warm and insightful approach to dealing with life's most complex challenges and provides a hands-on guide that gently encourages readers to change the thoughts and behaviors that may be keeping them imprisoned in the past. This new edition brings her fresh perspective and nuanced understanding of processing deep issues with children, and the bonus chapters cover navigating and moving forward from COVID-19, as well as 17 recipes from Dr. Eager and Dr. Engel's Kitchen, given their shared belief in the healing power of food and its ability to connect us. Without further ado, please welcome these amazing women with amazing stories, Dr. Edith Eager and Dr. Marianne Engel. Welcome to Rise Together. My name is Dave Hollis. I'm the host of this show where we're going to hopefully have you feeling a little more normal in this, the human experience maybe see yourself even in some of the stories that are told or have your appreciation of what it means to be human expanded by someone who's come on as a guest who's had a different life experience in all of it we are trying our best in community to learn from each other to grow and maybe even have a little bit more compassion for what it's like to walk in each other's shoes when we do we all rise together Hello, guys. Hey. Hello, hello.
2: I, I think you're great. And uh, it's just so wonderful that we we have Zoom. I think it's a great thing. I don't have to get dressed. All I need is a scarf by Escada. It happens to be a good one because my father told me when I was a little girl, when I will grow up, I'll be the best dressed girl in town. So... Watch me, Papa, I am well dressed, ready for you to let you know that life is beautiful.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, your dad would be very proud that Scarf is fantastic, Uh, even more fantastic. Your story is just something that is so incredibly inspiring. And for anyone who is facing hard times or is finding themselves maybe having a hard time releasing some of the feelings of hard times, Man, there's just so much that your story provides anyone who reads or listens to it. Would you do us the favor of just giving a little bit more of your background and story and, and how you find yourself doing the work that you do today?
2: You know, my parents had two beautiful girls. One of them played the Mendelssohn violin concerto um, when she was maybe six years old. And uh, and the other one played the piano. So my parents were very, ready to welcome a son and you know, this is what happened. Um, one of the highlights of my life is when my mother looked at me and said, I'm glad you have brains because you have no looks. And I think it's very important for people to pay attention the messages, the stories that they still carry with them. I'm not angry at my mom because I became a very erudite. I became a very, very um, um, hopefully um, studying person who is today, Dr. Edith iwa So I'm here to honor my mother, especially, who told me in the car, I quote, we don't know where we're going, honey. We don't know what's going to happen. Just remember, No one can take away from you what you put here in your own mind. And that is exactly what happened. Everything was taken away from me.
0: No, your story is so incredible and inspiring, but also it's hard to even understand what it would have been like or how it would have been to be in your shoes. The idea of tapping into the courage to keep going is something that I think so many of us end up struggling with when things feel hard. And man, I've had that feeling, but nowhere near the scale of what you had to face. I'm I'm curious for, for anyone who feels a sense of hopelessness, given the circumstances of their life, like how do you encourage someone to muster that will to keep going, even in the face of what feels like insurmountable odds?
2: Never never depress a person. uh, And start to tell them about how they can change. Um, I think you, you keep their feelings company. And, uh, and I think the word, the word permission is very important because what people want to do is run away from it. They just want to get rid of it right now. And I did that. I did that and I don't think that's a good idea at all because your body talks to you and the body never lies. So you can either vent the anger, suppress the anger, which I did close to 20 years. And I think it's important to dissolve it. And uh, that's what I do. I see there is a heart behind you. So I can tell you that yes, love can conquer all and I think that's that's what you're doing you're selling the heart the warmth the love that we can empower each other with our differences that you can be Dave and I can be Edie and Marianne can be precious Marianne and we all look at the same thing perhaps from a different perspective
0: Yeah, I I know for me, and I'm going to assume that it is the case for many people. When I found myself in a circumstance where everything I thought was going to happen wasn't now actually how it was going to turn out, it felt hopeless in so many ways. In so many ways, it felt hopeless. And one of the first casualties of my hopelessness was my imagination. I had a really hard time casting a vision for what next was gonna look like now that it was most certainly not going to be what I thought it was. How did you, or did you, in the midst of this most harrowing part of your life, find the will or muster the imagination to develop hope inside of a hopeless season?
2: You never do anything other than recognize that you are disappointed, but that doesn't mean you are discouraged. See, you don't have to like everything. It's what you do with it. It's how you look at it. As I look at Auschwitz as an opportunity, as a schoolroom, that I was able to um, not change anything from the outside. Four o'clock in the morning, I did not know what's going to happen when I even end up maybe in a gas chamber. When I took a shower, I didn't know whether water or gas is going to come out. And I think this is a very difficult time that we are experiencing right now. But the automatic response is many times, I just, I just want to believe it doesn't exist. And that's denial and delusion. And most of the things people do, they minimize. Not such a big deal. You know, everybody's, I don't think that's very good. I, I like to look at things, uh, as an opportunity to discover my inner strength and look at life from inside
0: out. Yeah. Well, Dr. Engel, I'm curious. I have have four kids, 15, 13, nine, five. They're experiencing, yeah, that's a million kids. Uh, We've we've obviously got so many things that are happening in the world. We're coming out of this COVID pandemic. They're processing in real time the news out of Texas of another school shooting. I'm curious, with so many fresh feelings and so much, even in some ways that gets exacerbated by the way that social media doesn't necessarily always uh, work to calm or create hope necessarily, uh, how can we as parents pour into kids when they're feeling all these feelings in a season of hard times like the ones we're in right now?
1: Thank you. That is a wonderful question because what we're seeing clinically is that the incidence of depression, anger, um, dismay, is just so high with um, across the country, across the world actually, because um, I do a lot of work around the world. And there is a tremendous worry for children about what is life really about? I sort of thought life was gonna be happy. I thought the worst thing was somebody didn't invite me to a birthday party or that somebody was mean to me at school, or I lost a game. And suddenly what's really worse is that kids are getting killed and people um, are having to leave their country. And, you know, I mean, the the amount of dismay since COVID and the Ukrainian war and all these shootings is um, it's hard to protect our children from it. And so the most important thing, and I know this is really hard to say, but parents really have to not share their dismay with their children. I mean, it's fine to say, this is really horrible. These things shouldn't happen. We have, as adults, we've got to help prevent these things to happen. And sweetie's, I'm going to work on it. And, and you can probably work on it too with your classes and stuff. You, as my mother says, you have to acknowledge that it happened, but I wouldn't over talk it. And your kids will identify with you. So, I mean, I can't tell you how upset I am about these school shootings yeah. because, and, all, and the amount of guns available to angry 18-year-olds who can go buy it without anything. You know, we're, we're, the stupidity that we are doing right now as a country um, is, is overwhelming. But I don't tell my grandchildren. That. Right. Uh, but I tell them, I tell them that these, this is new, this is bad. And we know it's bad. Now we hope everyone else will know it's bad. And hopefully things will happen. And then I say, is this something you think about? And is it something that you're, anybody's talking about? So you really try to make it an open conversation and then move on. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable. With stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah soft. Made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com.
0: Well, it is interesting. It it brings a thought to mind. I know that I am, uh, yep, the person who hopes for every single medal, every single championship, every single win in, uh, you know, student government race. And also (laughs) I know I've become so much of who I am in losses that I've become so much of who I am in failure. Certainly, you know, (laughs) Dr. You're eager, you know, you, you are so much of who you are because of the experiences that you've been through as much as Dr. Engel and I are as well, or anyone who's listening. And I, I do, try to fight that urge, whether it's helicopter parenting or protecting them from feeling the feelings of disappointment because of how important I think they end up being in developing character and grit and tenacity. Um, share, oversharing is one thing, but I do think that there's still, right, there's still a place for us making sure that there's some exposure, as it were, yeah? Yeah,
1: if I can just say something, and then I'm sure my mother has something brilliant to say about it. You know, I think it's really important for children to be allowed to fail. And because what we're seeing is that kids who are not allowed to fail, by the time they finish college, they're kind of stuck. Yeah. Because the assumption is that if they start to fail at something, they are really going to fail. And I can't tell you the number of patients that I see around that age who can't quite take what real life is really like. And they still want mommy and daddy's protection, so it's not a favor, you know. Yeah. Let them fail. let them feel like crap, you know. Help them out, protect them if you need to, but basically say, you know what? Sometimes these things happen, and when you're, I mean, I said this, I said this in my office the other day to a mom. I know your kid is having trouble making friends and all these things, and you're upset with what's happening, but these are the kids when they finish
0: college, who have a strength of character that those other kids are
2: not. Yeah. So it's okay. Dr. Eager? Yes, I just like to say that you you want to differentiate, um, not to say um, that I'm a failure. Uh, I may have failed at something, but it doesn't mean I am a failure. I am not good at multiple choice tests. I can tell you that I can I can really fail the multiple choice test uh, if I take a driver's test. But that doesn't mean I am a failure. So I think that really I'd like to people to know that you're not a failure at any times. God doesn't make junk. I hear that from young people. And I really like that. You're one of a kind. And... Uh, and I like people to recognize that, that no one can ever replace you. There'll never be another you.
0: Yeah. I love this quote from the book. I think it applies here. In some respects, it's not what happens to us that matters most. It's what we do with our experiences. I mean, Dr. Eger, you referenced it a second ago that, you know, everything in your mind was a thing that you ultimately had control over as the circumstances outside were not things that you could control. But that some of the worst prison that you experienced wasn't so much something that the Nazis put you in, but the one that was created inside yourself in your own mind in whether, whether it was called limiting beliefs or the stories that you, you know told. Can you talk just a little bit about how any of us have this thing in stories and attribution and the way that you and your own experience have seen the power of telling stories in a way that empower
2: I like you to get rid of two things. One is in the past, one is in the future. What is in the past is guilt. What I could have done, I should have done, and why didn't know better. And I think if you just tell yourself, if I knew better, I would have done it. You know, forgive yourself, because if you you knew better, my parents had tickets to come to America. Imagine. They took it with them to Auschwitz. Uh, If they knew, and I hope that you can do that. The other is worry, and worry is in the future. And I'm mostly talking to mothers. Marian knows about it because she's really an expert talking to mothers about stop preaching. And uh, and, um, I think it's very important that we never worry about good things happening. What if this happens? What if that happens? So to get rid of worry and get rid of guilt. I live in a I live in the present. I can only touch you now.
0: I mean, there are there are plenty of us who've had something terrible happen in our life and then allow that to define us. There's something in an identity yeah. shackle that comes yeah. in the negative attribution that we've afforded to the experience. And I say this not in a way to minimize in any way, the severity of the trauma or how unfair it may have been or how much it wasn't deserved. But how do you, if you find yourself stuck in a limiting belief loop that has you still identifying with that trauma and not seeing something in you becoming the hero of your own story because of it, are there tips or tricks that you've run into that you, you know, to the people that you coach or teach or have as patients might recommend to a listener today?
2: Many, many times people introduce me that I am a survivor of Auschwitz. I'm not a survivor of Auschwitz. I'm a human being who went through an experience, but it's not my identity. And I'm not stuck in there because when you're stuck, you're still there. You're still, you're still a prisoner. So I think it's very important to people to think about your thinking and see what you're paying attention to and what you're focusing on. And this is a good day. You and I and my daughter, the three of us get together, not to be a rescuer and not be a persecutor, and most of all, not to become a victim. You cannot be a victim without a victimizer. And I think that's very, very important to recognize that Many times, yesterday's victims can easily become today's victimizers or identifying with the aggressor. It's called the Stockholm Syndrome.
0: Uh, Okay, I'm going to come back to victimhood in just a sec. I do want to hear from uh, Dr. Engel about kids and anything that they might at early ages because of bullying, because of scores on tests, because of... Feedback from family of origin that maybe isn't as uplifting as the house I got to grow up in. What advice do you give to the parent who wants to try and help them with the storytelling that they may be believing about themselves because of some external source trying to tell them their truth instead of them believing in their own?
3: You really um, must have a great relationship with your kids.
0: I love, you really
2: it.
3: <laughs>
0: I'm i trying every day. I'll tell you what, I love these guys.
3: I know. I know. They, you know, it's, it's the challenge of life. It's so important to do with children what we do with ourselves, which is we teach them to understand what the situation is pretty much how limited it is. It was yesterday's situation. And with children, I think it's so important to give them a voice. So we want to hear what they think. A lot of kids don't wanna talk to their parents because they feel they're gonna be lectured with or they're gonna be told not to think this or not to think that. So keeping those places open or have somebody else that a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, sometimes it's easier for them to talk to them, but for them to have a way to talk about the painful thing and to understand that it's, as my mother would say, temporary. And it doesn't define them. It's just something that's happened to them. And what can they do now so that they don't let it overcome them every day? Yeah. You know, and for kids, you know, what happens when you go to school and that bully comes up to you again? What do you do? I mean, that's a really good conversation to have. It's also, if it's bad, you need to have a conversation with the adults in their lives because it shouldn't be allowed. Um, we just in in uh, I'm in New York right now, and at one of the schools, two very popular girls were kicked out of school for a week because they were harassing some kids online, of course. Um, and it took it took parents to go into the school, the school to you know one one of the things just at the side is that parents think that schools know what's going on with their kids, they don't. There is no way, pretty much, that they're going to know the ins and outs of the interactions because they're all done behind their backs. So, you know, don't assume that the school knows that they're going to get protection unless, if it's really bad, you go in and um, say something. Um, and I know a lot of parents don't want to do that, but there are some circumstances where it's essential.
1: Yeah. Now,
3: when it's not essential, it's just every day being mean. Then your kid really needs how to how to ignore it, or get their own friends um, to help them ignore it. Sadly, we are in a um, moment in the United States of, of kid meanness to each other. Uh, I don't know if you have it with your own children if you if they come home and talk about it, but it's very painful as a parent to watch. Yeah. Uh, but the best thing, or like they don't do well in a test, or or they do have have some kind of disability. My mother, as she's talking, she is terrible at these tests. Poor thing. So, when she has to go back for her driver's license test, she studies like for the SAT just to pass a test that every person on the planet passes, no matter what their education level. You know, because not only are you not that good at it because you think too much, but you also then become so frightened that you're not going to succeed. And that this happens to kids all the time. You know, some kids are bad at reading. Some kids are bad at writing. Some kids are bad at math. You know, there's just, it's just is what it is and there are ways we can help them. And then the last thing I want to say is that if you have a child who really is not getting better and you can see this happening and you can't figure out what to do, child psychologists were made for that. We actually can help.
0: You it's know, interesting. Like, like the, the thing that I have done, maybe more than any, this, this feels like a weird humble brag, but like I have been so intentional about my own mental health journey that sharing not the details, but the process of sitting with a third party, inviting my feelings to a table in my mind and asking them questions, like normalizing feelings as a thing that are okay and talking about them has more than anything just been an invitation then for when feelings exist, because of course they do, but it's not taboo to bring it up. I I was raised in a household by amazing humans, but also we didn't talk about the way that we felt. And so that is something that if, um, man, if I can have any impact on these littles, I wanna make sure that they know, feeling is just fine and totally normal as a human being. And when you speak your fear out loud, when you draw your anger, you draw your insecurity into the light, It usually takes some of the power away from it just by acknowledging that it even exists. So anyway, yeah, I I mean, I love it. I hate that we live in a world where kids are mean, but they're also likely uh, taking some of the model of of a world where adults are also mean, and uh, social media certainly isn't making it any easier for any of us.
2: I think it's important to realize that the word why is a past-oriented word and a problem-oriented word. Why is this? Because, why? Because, and I think it's very important, mothers especially may ask uh, the son, why did you hit your brother? And the brother knows mommy needs a reason. So very quickly he said, he, he hit me first. And mother doesn't realize that she's making the son lie. <laughs> and, and so I I... I have trouble with the word why. It's Why is in the past? What is in the present? So it's not why me, it's what now.
0: Ooh, that's good.
2: I spoke to more than 100,000 Ukrainians until now. That's what's going on. And I am so grateful that I can sell hope and never give up.
0: Let's stick on the why question for a second, because in spending time with your work and in being inspired by your work, this victimhood conversation is something that I resonate having fallen victim to, no pun. The idea of like, why is this happening to me? Feelings trapping me in something of an identity as a victim rather than a victor or a hero. And I know there's plenty that's been written over time about becoming the hero of your own story. It's part of what I admire about you. But are there simple keys or or tips that you've historically given to patients or in your work that anyone who finds themselves right now identifying as a bit of a why me kind of mentality might help them get unstuck from it?
2: Marianne has a comment on that. Maybe heed it, please.
0: Yes, please.
2: (laughs) It's very easy to sit back
1: in your most comfortable chair, put your feet up and hate life. You know, what happened? Where did it, da da, 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 It's much more interesting to pull out a piece of paper and say, well, you don't have to. But just think to yourself, how did this happen? Let's start at the beginning. And so you sort of pretend you're the academic of your own life and try to understand it. Because usually there are things that have happened. There may be decisions you made along the way that were... Things you would do differently now. So you have to learn from it. And the more that you feel like the victim, the more that you feel sad about that, as opposed to sad about the process. It's really okay to feel sad that things didn't work out. You know, yeah. things don't always work out. So, you know, you 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 want to be an actor. My son wanted to be an actor. He's the best looking kid in the world. He was a model, he saw his picture everywhere but nobody would pick him up as an actor because he said he was too good looking and he didn't have enough acting experience. Who knows what the truth is. It was very sad for all of us because he wanted it so bad. And you you have to just look at that, be honest about it, and then figure out, okay, what's next? I have a long life to live. I'm not gonna sit here and feel mad all the time or sad or angry. But I think understanding the process, making peace with yourself about it, and then say, as my mother would say, okay, what's next? And how do I think about that? And I think with children have to do that all the time. And one of the things that have happened, especially in the United States, is a kid does badly on a test. And somehow they think, okay, I'm not good at X. And maybe that's not true. Maybe they weren't taught well. They didn't study enough. Boys, for instance, there's a classic study, which I adore. Which is, if a boy, high school boy, does badly on a test, he will say, "The bad test." If a girl does badly on the test, she says, "I didn't study enough."
0: (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, it's wild.
1: (laughs) So, I would like the boys to blame themselves a little more, take a little more responsibility, and I'd like the girls to do the best they can and then live with it, figure out what to do next. So. You know, it's, it's, it's not the same for everybody. But going back, looking at it in an honest way, planning ahead, and don't assume that it says that you're horrid. It just assumes that that moment didn't work out too well.
0: Yeah. I know for me, anytime I found myself inside of a victim mentality or mindset, anger has also been present, whether yes. it's anger at myself or anger at what I have assigned the oppressor. What role does anger play? Are there any benefits to anger? or yeah. And if there aren't, like how's the fastest way to, as you're trying to now change the, the victim mindset, also dismiss anger at the same time?
1: Okay, so you don't dismiss anger. You understand it. And first of all, you're a boy. Men tend to go to anger. Women tend to go to depression. Mm. And it's the same thing. You know, it's either hating yourself or hating the world. But, and so when you start to get angry, so I also do sports psychology with professional athletes. Amazing. So if you will notice that sometimes when uh, 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 someone in the sport traditionally does well but starts to do you badly, you'll see them getting tense, tense, tense. And for two minutes, they will do better. And after that, they go down. So anger is a benefit for a very short amount of time. But if you don't turn it into being useful and understanding the mistakes you're making, then actually it doesn't. So when you get angry for all the men listening here and all the women who have anger issues, let yourself be a little angry and stop yourself. And then say, okay, what's going on here? I don't want to hurt anybody else with my." And if you're angry at yourself, say, okay, I'll be angry at myself for two minutes. You give yourself two minutes. Be as pissed off
0: as you want. And then it's up. Yeah. No, that's good. I like a time limit too, because I do think there's there's something in like the inquisitive detective in me that likes to understand why the anger is there. So it feels like, yep, it being there serves a role or at least is worthy of honoring the fact that it's present. But I also like the idea of... Uh, trying to find a way to transition from it to something else in a quick amount of time, because it doesn't tend to be terribly productive in my life either. I I, I am really interested, though, in this uh, the victimhood anger conversation. There's a quote in the book that I love, and I think it relates to forgiveness, but I want to get your take. And and it was the line, releasing ourselves from victimhood also means releasing others from the roles we've assigned them um, it feels like an implied endorsement around uh, the power of forgiveness or the way that if you were able to change that uh, pointing a finger that maybe you give yourself a, a permission slip for freedom. But uh, Dr. Eager, could you give me a little of your take on this?
2: I think people are not angry because they're not getting what they want. Um, I think pra- Anger is not a primary emotion. I think underneath of anger are many, many feelings like anxiety, like uh, disappointment. I think that is also very important to mention that underneath of anger is a lot of fear. Yeah. It's a fear a four-letter word. I think it's very good to write down all your fears because you were not born with it. You learned it. And uh, what you can learn, you can unlearn. So that would be my take on the why question.
0: Yeah, there's something interesting like anger. Anger 100% every single time for me is a reflection of something of my own fear. And it's usually connected to fear, of not being seen or not being loved. And so, uh, man, I see it so clearly. I, I, I wish that it's a trigger. Yeah. I wish that knowing that, uh, they're related or that there's a correlation would keep me from necessarily, you know, having the reflex and the reaction, but, uh, at least understanding the relationship makes it make a little bit more sense in a world where I like to have things make sense. I don't know if that makes sense, but, um, as far as though, releasing the person that you may have assigned as the, uh, the, the the oppressor, what is the benefit that that creates to you in trying to release yourself from this identity of victimhood?
1: When you have a victim, then you are spending a lot of your emotional energy focusing on that, and frankly, Life is short, as my mother said. Life is short and then you die. So if you want to carry around that feeling for somebody else and use all of your precious moments with that, you can. But it's not going to get you to the next step. And by understanding that these things happen, they may or may not be doing to you on purpose, whatever. You can... It's like, it's like being angry. Allow yourself a few minutes of a moment and then figure out a way to move
2: in a different direction. Yeah. I think the word understand is what men use a lot. And I want you to go to a classroom to know what that word means, understand. Men want to understand everything and women want to feel the feelings.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Not talk
2: about the feeling, not diagnose the feeling, not medicate the feeling, feel the feeling. Because what comes out of your body doesn't make you ill. Crying is good. Yeah. Crying and screaming. Do it in a car where no one can see you.
0: Yeah. I mean, I know for me, man, I think it's ego. There's something that has me holding on at times to the assigning of, you know, if it weren't for you or if you only hadn't, and that, again, it feels like, you know, swallowing some poison, (laughs) you know, swallowing poison to try and teach them a lesson. The longer I hold on to it, the longer it takes for me to continue my own journey of growth. And um, certainly it doesn't um, have me as the hero. It has me, again, sitting inside of that space as victim.
2: You know, my mother... My mother used to say in Hungary, if my grandmother would have had something else, she would have been my grandfather. (laughs) And and It is what it is, honey. That's what you're getting. You better look at it. And uh, you wish it would be something else. And I knew that I was wishing to be free. And it was very helpful to me because my boyfriend told me I have beautiful eyes and beautiful hands. And all I wanted you to tell me about my beautiful eyes and my beautiful hands, because tomorrow I'm going to see my boyfriend. Mm. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. Even though I was told every day I was called a pariah. That was my name. I was a pariah. And I, I was cancer to society, mm. but I didn't internalize that. I was able to turn hatred to pity. Oh. And I felt sorry for the guards wearing that uniform, bring brainwashed to hate.
0: Wow. Hatred to pity. I mean, that's a lot in a single sentence right there. Beautiful. And my goodness, hadn't even ever contemplated that. I know so much of the work that you've done, both of you, has focused around grief and productive ways to process feelings of loss. There's certainly plenty of uh, us who are here and listening now that are experiencing or have experienced grief. I, I, you know, I'm impatient. This is maybe a generational thing, but I wanted a fast track to getting through grief and I have found myself every day just appreciative of the non-linear experience that is this journey of grief and a thing that maybe doesn't ever necessarily totally have an ending. Is there anything in your own experiences with grief that could be helpful to someone who find themselves stuck in it or are hoping or wishing for some kind of time machine that might accelerate the process of processing?
2: I think all therapy is grief. Not what happened, but what didn't happen. For example, my granddaughter, Lindsay, went to a wonderful school called Bishops in La Jolla. And she asked me to buy her a dress. And I remember I did buy her a dress. And I think it was original by Laura Ashley. I can ask her again. And I came home and out of the blue, I was crying. Now, the word understand, I didn't understand what am I crying about because I just did a beautiful thing. I spent money on my granddaughter's dress so she can go to her dance. But I didn't realize that what I was really crying about is that I never went to a dance. Wow. So I think these early recollections, would be very good to mention people when they don't understand. That word, I don't know. Overcome, I don't know that word either. I I never overcome what happened. I came to terms with it. Mm. I call it my cherished wound. And part of me was left in Auschwitz. And even today... Many times when I go and see people are building homes and, and neighborhoods and, and uh, I see the barbed wires all over, I have a triggers. Yeah. And now I know that I'm good. And I even carry a blue passport in my pocket. So I'm not there, I'm here but I don't have to run from it anymore or deny it or have any kind of delusion.
0: I'm going to assume, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that some of what ends up being cathartic in your processing is actually telling your stories and writing your books and giving your speeches. I love you started the line. I mean, I wrote it down because I love the line. What comes out of you doesn't make you sick. What stays in there does. We're coming out of last month having been Mental Health Awareness Month. I'm a, you know, gonna bang the drum as long as I can for how important it is for us to destigmatize talking about mental health and how important it is to talk about our feelings when they're there so they don't fester inside. If if there was anything, and I'd say even maybe more specifically for our kids, Dr. Engel. How do we model this or make normal this as a practice so that it just is a part of who they are as they get older and not something we have to try and train or coerce when they run into trauma or grief as adults?
1: So not everybody feels good at everything. And if we make children feel badly about themselves and grieve over their inabilities, it's very hard for them to And I can't tell you the number of. I did a thing for a San Diego um, uh, TV, which is probably now illegal if I think about it. But anyway, with a reporter. And we went on to um, uh, places where kids were playing sports. And um, I would stand near them, and it would be a photographer with me. And the parents, the poor things that they were yelling at their children. While they're playing sports, I'm sure you've heard this one. Oh yeah. And then, then, God forbid, your kid does badly, right? Or the team loses, or whatever. Um, when I give talks on this, one of the things I always say is, when you pick your kid up and he's in the car, she's in the car, do not discuss the game. Talk about when you're going to get a treat. Because winning and losing is not nearly as important to the kids as it is to the parents. But for the parents who then want to give the kids their whole story about what he should have done, what they have done, by the time you're done, you either have a kid who is a good athlete, but pushes themselves way too much, or you have a kid who just hates themselves. And then they hate their parents for it. Yeah. Um, the number of kids who drop out of sports. Right now, 75% of kids are dropping out of sports when they hit teenage years because they hate this interaction. So, we talk about what can parents do. They can let kids enjoy themselves, they can work hard, and they can just let them be kids and love them. Because if you don't do that, you're going to have a kid who's going to always be challenging themselves about why am I not better? Why do I feel like crap? And you're going to hate somebody else instead. Um, you know, we, we don't always raise our children in the best way.
0: So uh, The Gift, its updated version, is now out. You guys co-authored it together. But uh, unexpectedly but beautifully, there's food in this book. And I want to hear from you. Uh, You mentioned kind of like the healing power and the importance of food as a part of anyone's journey. But talk a little bit about why it's in this and what you'd hope for someone who picks up the book to get from um, the, the recipes and the opportunity to cook together uh, as a family,
1: even though I have a PhD, etc., etc., what I really love to do the most is cook. And I used to write a food poem, and I knew James Beard. I knew all the most famous people. And they basically said, This is what you should do with your life. But you do have two young children, and maybe you don't want to travel too much, and actually, you have another way to make money. I eventually decided that I was going to stay a psychologist, but I love food. My mother, never cooked she was not allowed to cook by her own mother and then by my father's cook she came to america has become an amazing cook and she her hungarian recipes are i mean i've been to hungary many times it's never as good as her is sitting at her house and then i developed recipes from her recipes and we think that food is love And when you sit down with people and you serve them food that you care about and you laugh and you talk and you're together and you take the time to have a real meal, you know, families are not eating together, which they should be doing. What a gift to give our team. So anyway, we both love food and we want people to love each other. And so that's where it come. from. And so the 17 recipes, and it was really hard to pick 17. I'm now trying to talk to publishers and let them do a real cookbook. Um, But they're all really, really delicious and they're fun and they work because I'm a food writer. And um, that's why we do it.
0: I love it. <laughs> There's so many conversations with my own four kids that only happen when enough space is given for them to happen and the dinner table, right? It doesn't even mean that there's an agenda. We're not even necessarily jumping into a conversation right away, but I it might be it. between, you know, f- you know, the the passing of uh, a seconds request that someone finally is like, "Oh, with enough dead air here, I'm going to actually now tell a story about a thing that I wouldn't have otherwise told," and then it's an invitation for everyone to jump in. I love it. I uh, I can't wait to try some of the recipes. All right, we're running uh, shorter on time. So uh, I mentioned the book, it's The Gift, it's a revised edition that both of these amazing women have co-authored. If someone were to pick up this book, what is the single thing that you would hope, not single, but what's a thing that you would hope that they would take away from it, Dr. Eger?
2: I would like actually for somebody to look at one of my recipes it's called uh, a seike goulash <laughs> because, because, because they're not going to even know what they're doing, but they're going to taste it because you take your meat and you mix it with sour cream and sauerkraut and oak oh, and caravan seeds and God knows what. And I would very much appreciate it that they would have an experience in their lives to have something that they never had before. And I, I hope uh, my dream will come true and you may be trying. If not, you come to my house and I'll cook it for you.
0: I want to come to your house so badly right now. It feels like an overreach to invite myself, yeah, but you guys nice. are just the most pleasant, lovely, wonderful people. Goodness gracious. I'm just so happy that this hour has taken place. Uh, Marianne, if there was something that you would hope that somebody would take from picking up the gift, what would you hope they take away? Recipes or not?
1: I want them to learn to love themselves. Yeah. And figure out how to do that and love the people that they love and have them feel their love. I think if we could do that as a world, it would be
0: a very it's the thing I want the most. It's the thing I think most of us want the most, is just to love ourselves. All right. If people are interested in getting to know you or your work a little bit better and they don't already follow you or don't already have themselves immersed inside of your books or anything else that you make available, where do you send people on the internet to find you?
1: My mother is Dr. Edith Eager and she is on, um, so our son Jordan, um, the non-actor who then became a um, photographer. and is amazing. Um he worked with some other top people. And he does he does her all her internet stuff. And it is beautiful. My mother does interviews, he takes photographs. Um, so that's where I live.
0: Excellent. All right, we finish with one question every single time. It it sometimes is a tough one, so I'm just gonna warn you ahead of time. But If you only had a single thing that you could share, a single takeaway with our guests, it's the thing that you think that somebody today needs to hear. It could be an idea, a question, an actionable piece of advice that might afford them some peace, some knowing, some sense of self or connection to love. What would that single thing be?
2: Well, I like people to actually get rid of one word. It's called fear. And and to write them down and recognize that you, you were not born with it, you learned it. And I think once you do that, you have that freedom to choose and you risk, that's a very good four-letter word, to risk and even suffer something that you haven't done before. So that's why I tell people, don't call me a shrink, call me a stretch. So we're going to... Today we stretched our comfort zone and I'm, I'm telling you something to do what you have avoided before.
0: I love it. uh, I love it. Dr. Engel, anything from you for a single passing final thought?
1: So I, I have invented a thing for athletes called the sports. I want everyone to learn to do it. After 9-11, we taught all the teachers in New York and they're still, they're still using, watch me. Breathe in and hold your fist. Breathe in through your mouth and your nose. Hold it, hold it, hold it. Hold it. Keep holding. Hold, hold. And now breathe out really slowly through your mouth. Wow. It's
0: like a reset button.
1: That sounds it's, great. It, it's a reset button. And so if you can hold breathing in and holding for a count of 10, that's, what I'm, that's the best. And then let it go slowly through your mouth. It stimulates your brain, and it calms down your breathing whether you want it or not. So it is a great
0: technique. Beautiful. Uh, Doctor, 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 I'm just so pleased with both of you having been here today. I know that so much was gifted to this audience because of your presence and wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all, if you have not already grabbed the gift, grab this book. It is a fantastic read. There is a fantastic story, frankly, the choice which precedes it, a fantastic story that is so inspiring and so amazing from uh, from this woman, from both of these women. Um, thank you guys so much. I, I appreciate you. And I know that there are things that I have learned from your work that will fundamentally change the rest of my life because I'm not done running into hard stuff. But uh, whether I see myself as a victim or not, whether I am able to stay connected to hope or not, um, I see those things in some ways as a choice that I have, in part because of the influence of your words and your wisdom, and I'm grateful for it. So thank you so much. What a pleasure. Love you guys. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, To all of you listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and how could you not have, take a picture of the episode on the device that you're listening to please tag myself and these wonderful women and share it with every single person that you've ever met in your entire life. It will absolutely a hundred percent change them for the better between now and next week. Uh, I hope you'll take Dr. Dr. Eager's advice and turn some of that fear into an opportunity for stretch. And I hope you'll take Dr. Engel's advice and take that deep, deep 10 second breath to reset whenever you find yourself slipping into some funky space we will see you next week on the Rise Together podcast. Hey, y'all. While I am taking a hiatus from social media, I'd still love to stay connected to you on the regular. If you head over to mrdavehollis.com, I have an opportunity for us to become one-way pen pals yep i'm going to be sending out regular updates uh stories uh observations hopefully things that will also make you laugh or think uh and i'd love to be able to do that on the reg so if you uh, are so inclined hit mrdavehollis.com drop in your email and buckle on up i love y'all thank you for all the continued support let's go